everyone, Kareem right here, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing Skip Gilbert, who is the CEO at U.S. Youth Soccer. U.S. Youth Soccer is the largest youth sports organization in the country and the largest member of the United States Soccer Federation. The governing body of soccer in the United States, U.S. Youth Soccer registers more than 2.5 million players annually, ages 5 to 19, and over 900,000 administrators, coaches, and volunteers in 55 state associations. U.S. Youth Soccer programs provide a fun, safe and healthy environment for players at every level of the game. For more information, visit www.usyouthsoccer.org. Skip, thank you for taking the time for joining us today. How's it going? It's going well, Kareem. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So Skip, could you just share with our audience what initially drew you to soccer and how has your experience as a player influenced your role as the CEO of U.S. Youth Soccer? Oh, loaded, loaded question. You know, I, I started playing soccer, gosh, back, I mean, at that point, it was probably old for today's standards, but not until about fourth grade. Uh, we went out for a high school recess and the teacher took us out, put us on the field, threw a ball in the middle and said, play. No instruction, no direction, just go. Um, and I, I never really looked back. And so I've been playing a good number of years, right on up through the ranks from high school to college to the old NASL. Um, got to wear the red, white, and blue for a tournament over in Korea. Um, and uh, then got into the professional world. And four, four years ago, I was lucky enough to be able to return to the sport um, by taking the reins at U.S. Youth. Amazing. So a lot of experience in the beautiful game uh, that we both love. Could you share, was your transition from playing to front office hard or was it a smooth, easy tra um, transition? It's probably never smooth when you when you walk away from something you love. Um, but the reality was the NASL had folded. Um, I was trying to find find a spot with one of the, I think back then it was the ASL teams, you know, and I finally just kind of looked in the mirror and said, my parents had put way too much money into my education to be playing a sport for a hundred dollars a week or, you know, whatever the, the minute the wage was way back when. And so it was time to hang up the, although I didn't really hang up the shoes. I played club ball in New York city for a couple of years and the semi-pro ball, but um, I, I went out and found a job on the publishing side and sports media and really never looked back. Nice. U.S. Youth Soccer is the largest youth sports organization organization in the United States. Could you provide some insights into the organization's key initiatives and goals in terms of youth development through soccer? Sure. I mean, it goes back, you know, four years ago when I started, I, we were just we were just entering the pandemic. I started in January of 2020. Um, you know, by the time February came around, we started systematically closing certain things down around the country. And then by March, it was, you know, all things stop. And as much as the world stopped, we did. And that was a great time for us to kind of look in the mirror and say, okay, what are we going to do to change the world of youth soccer moving forward? Because in the United States, youth soccer is really fragmented. You know, it, it, unfortunately, it's more people are in the mindset of let's cannibalize from everybody else versus the focus on true player development. So I rewrote our vision statement. 
And our vision statement is to bring communities together through the power of soccer, making lifelong fans of the game. And when you start to unpack what that truly means is for any kids coming into the game, we want the door to be open for everybody. It doesn't matter where you're from, your background, your financial state. It didn't matter where you were. I mean, that's the beauty of the game is, you know, once you get on the field to play, we're all equal. Um, You know, it's only once you get out into society that they want to compartmentalize you. But when you step on the field, you know, you're you're just as good as your teammate. And so from that standpoint, you know, how do we make the doors stay open? So you'll have the pay to play model, which is here to stay. But how also can you start getting kids that that can't play within that paradigm to be able to play the sport? And so the growth factor is certainly important. But the reality in our country is you know, just about any kid, six, seven, eight years old is going to kick a soccer ball. The real challenge is how do we keep them? And we've gotten to the point where we've put so much pressure on some of the kids at the top of the player development pyramid that we're almost burning them out before they have a chance to actually be a kid. And we're seeing it now. All of the data is showing that by the age of nine, 10, 11, kids are going elsewhere. They're either going to a different sport because there's not as much pressure or they're leaving sport entirely, which means we absolutely failed doing our job. And so the the charge for us is how do we keep kids from the age of six right through 19? And if we do that, then we're going to make fans of the game. Because again, you're only going to play for so long. I mean, even if you're even if you're a professional player, at some point you're going to retire. You may play a couple of years in the adult league, but hopefully you're going to continue to watch the game on TV, go to games, support the national team, buy kits, you know, the whole nine yards to be able to wear the passion for the sport on your sleeve until you know you get to be my age. So that's really the the focus of everything we're doing here. So we launched US. SYS University, which is the community resource center to help people be better coaches, better referees, better players, better parents, dealing with mental health problems, dealing with, you know, muscular skeletal care, all of the things on and off the field of play that people want to know about, but may not necessarily know where to go. So again, when you talk about the initiatives, it's everything from on-field, off-field, you know, at the grassroots level to the elite level and everything in between because of our size and scope, that's really what we have to do. Got it. When rewriting that statement, were you able to make that decision on your own or did you have to go through a few people? No, it was part of the charge when I... Um, accepted the job, the board had said, look, you need to also write a strategic plan because there hadn't been one done in, in a long time. So you start to kind of interview everybody and you start listening to all, you know, everybody connected with the sport from coaches to players to um, to parents. But also we have a valuable network, 54 state associations around the country that are really the boots on the ground to activate against all of the different programming to be able to keep kids in the game and get them into the game. And so I 
you know, got as much data as I could. And you start to see the themes, you know, and really everybody is, well, the World Cup is coming. The Olympics are coming. How do we get the game to grow? How do we keep kids in the game? Well, you only do that is if you bring communities together through the power of the sport. You know, adults aren't going to get kids to play. Kids are going to get kids to play. You know, and, and I've said this all the time when I was coaching that you can give me a, a band of eight-year-olds that have never kicked the ball before or and but have all the heart that want to play and have the passion or a bunch of kids that are the elite uh, but have no heart, I'll take the newbies, you know, because those are the ones that are going to ultimately stay connected to the game for the rest of their lives. So that once we got to that point, we built the strategic plan, we revised our vision and mission statements, we go in front of the board of directors, you know, we went back and forth on a number of different things, we came out with what we felt to be a very compelling story to help drive the momentum of this organization forward. You mentioned children from the age of nine to 13 are from corrective burning out from the data. Um, are you able to see what sports they're going into? after soccer we've we've looked a bit i mean you look at really on, on the team sports side lacrosse is a factor not as much to football basketball is a draw baseball is a draw i mean kids you know are going to go from one to the next we did a survey actually with u.s lacrosse and we asked what sports would you like to play that you've never played before you know and again it's the usual suspects there weren't too many you know we don't have too many soccer players that that uh, that want to be luge athletes um you know they uh, and so from that standpoint it's the it's the typical set but at any rate it's i think the more concerning side are how many of those kids are just leaving sport and we don't necessarily have all of that data um it's hard to follow those kids once they leave the sport but that would be a you know a, a, an unfortunate unintended consequence of pushing kids too hard Absolutely. Absolutely. That pressure. I would like to share a little piece of my story with you. I know soccer has kept me on a, a positive path, um, keeping me out of trouble or any of, any of the sort, because all my time and focus went to the beautiful game, practices, games, being focused, being disciplined. I, I can't do certain things because I need to be healthy for this practice or this game. And I, I don't want to slow down and, and stay away from the negative stuff or negative influences. And that's the same thing that's happening for other children. Um, so when these when these pressures come along um, to the player, um, is it where is it coming from? Is it just coming from parents? Is it from them? There's there's um, from, from themselves or coaches? Where, where's the most pressure coming from or all of the above? It, it's all of the above. I, th I think a lot of pressure does come from parents. You know, they they're one of the one of our beliefs, one of my beliefs is, you know, the cost to play is getting so high that parents arguably become general managers. You know, they think that, well, if I'm paying X hundreds or thousands of dollars a year, I have the right to yell at the coach, to yell at the referee, to yell at my kid in the car ride home because I'm investing a lot of money and I want to return on my investment. You know, and and so it's a different mindset today. And, you know, and part of it is that all parents, I mean, we all live vicariously through our kids and we want them to succeed and we want them to do well. But there also be, has to be that happy medium. And I think this is where some parents forget that the kid doesn't have to end 
end up being in the starting 11 for the women's national team to be really successful. You know, they can have a great career, not play college. They might play club. You know, they may not play high school, but they still might play a club version. So it's just, again, it's managing the expectations and that expectation has to come from the kid. It can't be, I'm a parent, I want my kid to play D1. And so everything I say is grooming the child to want to be D1. Where when you take the child away from the parents and say, what do you really wanna do? Do they say, I wanna be a you know D1 player? If they don't have that, that's there's the divide. You know, and, and, I, and again, there's no empirical de- data that will, that will sort of support this. But when you look at kids that are successful at the sport, you know, to the highest level, how many of them held the ball, kicked the ball, had it at their feet for more than just during practice? When they go home, do they go outside and play on their own? Do they go out and practice juggling? Do they just dribble the ball? When I was when I did some coaching camps years ago with the goalkeepers, we used to make we it was a sleepover camp. We used to say we we don't want to ever see you walking around campus without the ball in your hands. Otherwise, you'll do push-ups. And you know, the goalkeepers at first they were like, What what are you doing? But then once they got that you know, design why they were doing that to, to get their hand skills down, it became just part of them. And then they left. And I'm sure, you know, the parents probably hated us because their kids were probably throwing the ball against the ball every day inside the house. But, you know, again, that's that's part of the challenge that we have to ensure that kids make their own decision how far they want to take their game. And, you know, that's the best we can offer for sure. Uh, I've spent a few minutes uh, watching a few of your interviews, actually two, and you mentioned it's a, it's a real investment on the parent's side in regards to uh, paying for uh, for the kids to participate, uh, driving to practices, driving to games, and it, it, it kind of brought me back in time to that commitment that my mom put in as well. So um, in regards to that investment, do you guys prepare parents for when entering into the space that th- this is a serious commitment? This isn't you know, you pay and your child's going to find their way there. You got to be there with them. <laughs> yeah, it's a, we put we put the parents to the boot camp. We don't necessarily do that at the national level, you know. Yeah. And and the problem is is that if you're playing in you know in Chicago or New York or San Francisco, it's probably a little bit different than if you're in Boise or or Bangor, Maine. You know, wherever you are in the country, the costs are a lot different. So the only thing we can hope and is that the clubs, when they bring parents in, you know, they either have sort of an onboarding kit for them or they're able to push them out to say, look, make sure you understand what you're getting into. Um, You know, that's something that's on our, you know, on the whiteboards, you know, in this office is, you know, should we truly create an an onboarding package? And what would that look like? And, you know, would it make a difference? But, um, you know, there are a lot of groups out there that do that sort of thing, and they do it well. And um, again, I think any parent that's getting into youth sports today, you know, really just needs to eyes wide open. I like to say their, you know, their lips are closed, except for when they're giving positive reinforcement, and of course, cheering on the sidelines. But, you know, that's the extent of it. Sure. You mentioned COVID-19 back in 2020, uh, a crazy event uh, for the whole world. How 
in your position, did you think soccer was going to come back? And I'm going to load this one up, one up a little bit. And um, did you think soccer was going to come back? And during COVID, how how were you guys able to to survive and and keep parents and the youth engaged? You know, and again, it kind of went state by state. You know, in the sense we have our 54 state associations, but each of the states under COVID had different rules and regulations. You know, for example, you go up into Massachusetts, they changed the rules of the game. You know, you didn't have throw-ins. Um, you weren't allowed shoulder charges. Corner kicks couldn't go into the box. Um, I mean, there were a number of different rules that to, to but it enabled the kids to be able to play. You know, because the political uh, machinery of Massachusetts said, well, if they do it that way, I guess it's safe and let them go. So we had to do we had to worry about all of the different nuances from state to state. Some states completely shut down. What we tried to do is instead of offering drills for what kids can do to kind of keep sharp, we actually ran contests to say, what are you doing as a kid to stay sharp? Show us how are you having fun with the game, but also being able to get touches on the ball. And, you know, some of the videos we got were just hysterical. But again, it just that's sort of the, the passion side of the sport. I didn't have any any question that the sport was going to come back, because, again, if you think about it, you know, those of us who played, and you know, you're you're one of them. You know, the commitment, the passion, the connection that you have to the sport. And when you're away from it for a little bit, not for your own by your own design but you're forced to be away from it. You're kind of chomping at the bit to get back out there. And the minute you do, it's like the floodgates have opened and everybody's pouring back. So, you know, the question so much wasn't, are they going to come back? It's just how fast will they come back? And, you know, and again, at the sort of the base of the pyramid, that was probably the most nebulous because for some kids, you know, they're just out there because it's, you know, it's a good thing to do. And they got caught up in COVID. Maybe they were focused on something else. And so they may not have had as much enthusiasm as the kids at the top of the pyramid. So uh, again, but I didn't, I didn't have any confidence. I didn't have any lack of confidence that people were going to come back. For sure. Skip, if you don't mind, I would like to share another story with you. Sure. During COVID, um, me and my buddies, a whole group of us, a whole group of us, even guys that were playing in MLS, a few guys. We would get together during COVID and and play games and security, local security would come, kick us off the field. We would go drive to another field, hop fences, play on turf, school turfs, you know, um, play games, relocate, get kicked off again, relocate and play again. Until we were like, all right, we're done running around, getting kicked off. Let's go home. And we were touching each other, sweating. And, you know, I got to say during that experience, it was like the love for the game is so strong that no matter what's going on in the world, it's going to bring us together. So, you know, in regards to what your comment that you you didn't have any lack of confidence of them coming back. Yeah, it's it's definitely a strong force. Um, just wanted well, to that's, a, that's a great story, because, again, you're one of those kids that probably after practice went home and had a ball at your feet. You might go out to the backyard. You know, you find places to play you find reasons to play and you find friends to play with um and and that's you know for some of the greatest players that's that's all they really needed yeah 
how has how has U.S. youth soccer adapted to the changing landscape of youth sports and the challenges brought on by technology and shifting scientists' interests? So, uh, not scientists, shifting social uh, social interests. Oh, that's a loaded question. You know, there's a there's a couple of ways we can unpack that. You know, the the technology behind the sport um, is arguably it's just incredible what you can now do with your phone. Um, it's a good news, but it's also sometimes it's too much. You know, I had a I had a lunch one day with the with the uh, chief medical officer at the University of Connecticut, and it was on, and we were talking about technology and sport, and we were more talking about their football program and the fact that they now, with all the con concussion protocols, you know, they know when a kid is potentially liable for a concussion. And the questions they have is if they let the kid practice and they get a concussion, are they then liable for that injury? And so therefore, do they sit them down? But if they're wrong and the kid sits down, are they are they now liable for sitting the kid down and hurting their career chances? So, I mean, it it it, it really, from a legal standpoint, it, it it opens a whole bunch of different doors. But, you know, the the nuances of technology and sport you know, it, it just, it, it allows everybody to have instant access. And again, it brings communities together through the power of soccer, you know, and, and in today's environment, you know, there, the, the youth sport landscape is just getting more and more crowded. And as a matter of fact, I send a, a morning message to the staff every day, an email to the staff. And yesterday was focused on our friends at the NFL. You know, congratulations to football for getting flag football into the Olympic Games for 2028. Um, and it'll and the NFL is going to get behind that. And you know that flag football is a, it's great. It's a fun sport, but they're also going to be targeting girls. And so from a soccer perspective, you want kids to play multiple sports. So you want kids to go out and find really what's in their best interest. But it just crowds the calendar of, you know, are you going to play football? Are you going to play soccer? Are you going to play basketball? You know, are you going to, are you going to do video games? You know, what's, what, you only have so many hours in a day. So it literally just becomes more and more crowded, which puts the emphasis back on player development. You have to be able to have a system where the kids, no matter what their level is, they're playing for fun, they're learning something, they're enjoying it, they're developing the passion, and ultimately they're getting to wherever their skill bar should put them. And if you do that, chances are you're going to hang on to it. Sure. Could you discuss some of the ways in which U.S. youth soccer aims to make soccer uh, the, the number one sport, the go-to for parents and, and children to to play. That's a uh, that's the sixty four thousand dollar question. You know how do you how do you inject passion into a kid? You know how do you inject passion into parents? Um, you know and and again it all goes down to the developmental ethic. You know if you think about it, there's a there's a saying within the coaching realm is that you never want to be a kid's last coach, because then that shows that. Well, you might not have been doing your job well enough because the kid quit. And so the reality is, in, in order to, to make soccer the preeminent sport in the country, you know, you need 
everybody firing on all cylinders from the minute a kid enters the game. You know, you know, you're going to get volunteer coaches. You know, you don't want the coaches who don't have any idea of what soccer is running it sort of like a, like an army drill. Um, you know, and so we have to come out with support mechanisms so that, you know, and we do with, for example, we have Mojo as one of our university partners, you know, a bunch of Disney guys that have now put a lot of minute clinics on for phone app and you can kind of find, all right, I want to do a give and go, or I want to do, you know, you know, a, a you know, different type of drills, they'll show it to you. And so the whole idea is, it's not so much what can we do to keep kids involved, it's how do we make the experience better for players, coaches, referees, parents, so that they just naturally grow to love the game. And it's not even a question of should we play, it's when are we going to play. And so that's really has to be the focus of us and just about anybody in youth sport is the, the, the idea and the focus has to be on the experience. Looking at the data, where does soccer lie, youth soccer lie in regards to uh, versus all the other sports and numbers and rankings? Is it what, number one, number two, number three? Or We are now in the U.S. I believe basketball is number one and then uh, baseball and, and soccer flip flop. Sometimes we're number two, sometimes, <clears throat> excuse me, baseball is number two. <clears throat> and then from there. I think you'll go down to, you know, you've got track, you got football, you got hockey, you know, all the other sports. But for the most part, basketball, soccer, I think pretty much one and two. And then what's the ranking based off how many participants there are? I think they do it on high school numbers. I think that's the easiest way to pull it. Um, you know, that's that's kind of hard in some cases because you don't, you know, there's an awful lot of kids that play club soccer. They may not necessarily play um high school uh, but you know with the uh the data experts the sfias of the world you know they've got their ways of getting all the research getting the numbers and, and posting it so um yeah kind of leave it to them yeah as someone with a background in executive management and business development how do you balance the goals of growing the sport and maintaining financial sustainability for us youth soccer yeah that's a that's an interesting one because again, you know, we're all part of the revenue is based on numbers of kids playing. I mean, you get registration fees. You know, we get two dollars and twenty-five cents for every kid that plays. Um, we then our national league, um, our ODP program. You know, that brings revenue in, but and and we're budgeted basically on our kind of events and our our competitive side of the game where we can generate more revenue for more programming is through sponsorships and grants. And you know, it's like everything else. We go march on, on uh, Madison Avenue. Uh, we talk to you know, the car companies, the insurance companies, the fast food companies, and we put our best foot forward. Then if they want to engage with soccer families, um, then we've got a pretty good story to tell. Coming out of COVID, we kind of wiped our slate clean of corporate partners outside of, you know, Dick Sporting Goods and, and a few others. But, you know, we're starting to see those numbers come back and a number of blue chip companies starting to look at the youth soccer and youth sports space again. Soccer is a global sport and you've played in various countries. How has your international experience influenced your approach to developing youth soccer programs in the United States? 
you know, I I was lucky enough to be able to play over in in England or train in England in Holland. You know, I played in Korea with the U.S. team. Um, you know, just being able to see how soccer is constructed in those countries and to see how it's kind of woven into the cultural fabric of the country, you know, and how it's, you know, when you, I, I train with Sheffield United. And so on any given Monday, the tone of the city really revolved around how United did. There was another team over there called Sheffield Wednesday. Um, and I, because I was with United, Wednesday was always the pigs and, you know, we, we hated each other and it was just an interesting phenomenon. And when I was on the business side in sports media, I worked for the sporting news and I get some of the ad buyers, you know, in New York, they'd say, well, you know, why did, why would you pick soccer? You know, back then most people were the other sports and they said soccer is a bunch of hooligans because that's all they see from England. And how in the world would you like a sport like that? And I'd say, well, you know, if you think about it, you take the English Premier League, it's kind of like taking the National Hockey League and putting it in the state of New York. So all the teams could drive together. And when you play against each other, part of the venue is given to the visiting teams and a metal fence separates you. So when the New York Rangers play the Philadelphia Flyers, if they were in that arena, in that kind of arrangement where they could drive in and I mean, they do now, could you imagine, you know, the brutality that would go on in that kind of existence? And so, but again, it shows you the passion. And if you go, you know, having gone to a lot of Ranger games and seeing the Ranger Flyer games, you know, there's that, that's a whole different world, but it also shows you the connectivity that hockey has with its fan base. So going back to your question, being able to play in other spots around the, around the world just gives you the visual sense of how you can bring communities together through the power of soccer you know, in our vision, make lifelong fans of the game. Can you share some success stories or memorable moments for from your time as the CEO of U.S. Youth Soccer that highlights the positive impact the organization has had on young athletes? You know, one of the one of the best things that that I've seen. Um, was at our national championships um, last year and, and, and certainly the year before, we do a program completely off the, the competitive side, but we do it with through our Top Soccer program. And Top Soccer is our program for disabled kids. And whether you have a physical or a cognitive disability, we bring these kids in and give them you know, the field, the balls, and, and sort of the support to be able to play. And watching these kids who, you know, are going through a very difficult time with their disability, to see them get out onto the field, to see the smiles on their face when they chase a ball and, and they, they score a goal. And then you see some of the other kids that are, that are there for the national championships, but they come just to watch and the parents to watch and to see the support that they give the kids. You know, you, you can't get any better affirmation that you're doing the right thing when you see the sheer joy on kids that for the most part aren't smiling an awful lot. 
you know, and that I think, again, goes back to the fabric of the sport and what it can do for just about anybody. Nice. I'm curious to know if, if any uh, professional soccer clubs have um, are part of your organization in regards to having their own youth clubs, uh, part of their pro clubs, like a pathway. Is there any of that? When you look at the USL, the MLS, um, they are they do have academy teams, um, so they do have kind of the the youth system in place. Um, NWSL, they're close to getting there. They're just not there yet um, on the on the women's side. So you know, our, our, on the men's side, they do, and they're working well. Um, and the questions now is how do we try to bring them together? To, to make a unified direct pathway. Um, we're not there yet. Uh, we, we hope to get there in the near future, but uh, again, it, it kind of goes and underscores the fractioned nature of youth soccer in the United States. There's so many lanes that a kid can pick. Um, it, it makes it really difficult to navigate it successfully. Yes, just so I'm I'm clear on it. Um, are you saying that MLS clubs and USL clubs like they have their own structure of youth organizations, or are, are they under US youth soccer? Their youth system is under you guys, and then they have their own pathway that they've structured. It's kind of a mix. Some of the academies at you know, if you like, if you go out my window here, you'll walk right into FC Dallas Stadium. FC Dallas has their academy team, and those are tied directly with MLS. But some of the feeder teams, the support teams, they may play for us or they may play for one of the other um, kind of organizational members of U.S. soccer. Um, and so it's it's kind of a hybrid mix. Some are on their own. Some are integrated. Some work across, you know, between us or U.S. club or, you know, AYSO, wherever the wherever the team seems to fit, then that's where they'll go. Most of them don't go down to like U5. Um, you know, most of them may stop at the U13 range. Um, and, and so from there, they depend on the local, the local clubs at the, at the lower level, you know, to push kids up and into their system. But right now it's an integrated mix and it's somewhat of a uh, hit or miss depending on where you are in the country. In regards to investors getting, well, so um in regards to number wise clubs, what do they range from? Um, do they like what would be a minimum number of players, like a hundred to a maximum of five hundred players? Is there that number range that you guys have? Um, no, I mean, again, you know we've got two point five million kids playing in our system, tens of thousands of of teams. Um, and you know there are you know if you go up into Alaska, you might have a team that's got, 12 kids, you know, and they got one sub. Um, you might go into, you know, a Massachusetts or an Illinois or, or an Arizona and some of the big cities. And, you know, they've got thousands, five, six to 10,000 kids within their, their kind of club environment. So it really runs the gamut. Well, yeah, that's amazing. Um, th th those are big numbers. I'm, I'm used to hearing, 500, 600 players underneath one club, but 5,000, that's a lot. Um, those are good numbers. In regards to for investors uh, that come across this and they're interested to, to launch their own club, for example, let's say if 
I'm not too sure how it works. If you could share, it'd be nice in regards to say, if I was interested to go launch a team in West Palm Beach, Florida, does that market have to be available or um, how does that work? And then when launching it, could you just take us through the expansion process? Is there a link that uh, people could go to to learn more and uh, figure out that uh, youth space? Uh, youth space. You know, in, in every community, it's a little bit different. You know, it depends on the league and, and their rules of entry. You know, some leagues are wide open. You could walk in and say, I want to play. And they give you the keys to the car. Some leagues are very kind of closed knit that if you're within X miles of another club, they're like, nope, you, you just can't do it. We don't want that kind of competitive mix. And again, everything in between. So realistically, you know, our advice is when you're going into, you know, whether it's, you know, Palm Beach down in Florida, you call Florida Youth Soccer they'll be able to give you a lay of the land of, you know, if you're trying to, to get involved, here's exactly what you do. So you start with the state association um, and they'll be able to give you a lay of the land and who's all, you know, who basically are the cast of characters. And then you can come on in, um, you know, and so from our standpoint, you know, I, I like to tell investors, sure, you can, you can go in and do that. Chances are most communities, you know, have that. If I were an investor, you know, I, I would almost go to an area where you need to build a facility, you know, and you've got these or these new things that are coming around the country, urban soccer parks. You know, you can go into a parking lot. You put almost like a like an indoor um, hockey rink and they put up the boards, the nets over the goals. You got the turf down and it allows communities to come in and play, um, you know, being able to do that opens the door for more kids to be able to play, you know, as opposed to if you go into a crowded market and think, well, I might have a lot of money and I'm going to be able to, you know, dress the kids in better uniforms. That's great, except you're probably not growing the game. You're probably pulling players from somewhere else. Yeah. In regards to um, investment correct investor criteria what's you know does the investor need to be an accredited investor or how much capital would be needed uh, i know it varies for for each market but what's like the the minimum there's and again depending on the level of what you're trying to do there's really no rules of engagement you know if you have if you have the the bandwidth and the and the pockets to be able to support a, a large club you know, there's no rules and regulations as to, you know, do you have to, you know, have certain type of a, of a bond structure, you know, you can just go in and, and find, find your place, figure out how you want to do it and start. Yeah. Um, what about uh, certificates or uh, is, do you need any of those things or background? in regards to a soccer background, or could a parent be like, oh, I have the funds, I understand the game a little bit, I'm gonna get some people around me that know the game and, and put this thing together. All bet, yeah, you know, all bets are wrong, anything is possible. You Got know, it. and again, basically, the, the core elements, if anybody wants to start a club, you know, one, you gotta make sure kid safety is paramount. You know, that's first and foremost. So you absolutely, whatever you're doing, you're background checking people, you're making sure that all of the rules of engagement around kids are followed so that every kid feels safe, but they also have a mechanism to be able to report something that 
might put them in an unsafe environment. But that aside, you know, you want you want coaching education. You want, um, you know, I guess from from that standpoint, you know, the coaching education is key. Facility management is key. Um, you know, it just depends on, again, the bandwidth that you have, the width and depth of the operation you're trying to create, you know, and then, uh, you know, you, as I say, you talk to the state association, they might even tell you, you know, here's a number of contacts from like size clubs, like size individuals that have done what you've done, and they'll be able to show you best practices, they'll be able to, to say don't do this because of this, um, you know, they'll give you kind of a roadmap to be able to succeed. For sure. Um, the last question I'll ask is what advice would you give to uh, young people that are in university or college that want to work in the front office of sports? You know, the when I used to work at the Sporting News, uh, which at that point, it was one of the premier sports magazines in the country. You know, it had been around since 1886 and it was considered the Bible of baseball. Um, and you know, I, I was the you know, the advertising manager for the, the for the publication, and occasionally we'd have sales openings, and we'd advertise for a sales spot. And I can't tell you how many times people came in and talked nothing during the interview, nothing but sports and how they love sports and how sports was everything to them. Immediately, that was the end of the interview. Because when you come in to a, whether you want a front office job or you're working at a, at a league or, you know, a, an organization like ours, we really don't care if you, you know, we, we expect that you're going to love the sport or chances are you're not putting your hand up. We want to know is what are you going to do to make a difference here? How are your backgrounds and skills going to be able to help us bring to communities together through the power of soccer and make lifelong fans of the game what are you going to be able to do to make a difference you know we don't want to know you know it's nice that you're a sports or a soccer fan or you're a player but you got to be able to do the job and you have to be able to do it well and you need to be able to prove you're going to be able to do it well so from that standpoint everybody wants to get you know into sports i mean i have lots of friends that you know have had incredibly successful careers you know, in on Wall Street, and you know, are at this point are are well beyond working. They they retired long time ago, and they said, you know, they I'd give everything to be in my shoes and work the you know the career that I've had because I'm such a sport. You know, they're such a sports fan. You know, and but the difference is, you got to go with your passion, sure, for what you want to get out of life. But you have to show how you're going to make that organization more successful. It's a great piece of advice. Thanks, Kev. Um, I got some fun questions. Sure. Just five, so nice and short. What is your favorite food? Ooh, my favorite food. God, I'd have to go almost with a cheeseburger. <laughs> cheeseburger and fries. What about cheeseburger and fries? Classic. What about favorite movie? Oh, favorite movie? Air Force One. Um, favorite activity? We're going to keep soccer off. I'll, I'll go outside of soccer. Favorite activity? Um, you know, my wife's a general contractor. And so um, 
there's usually a lot of work that either she'll want me to do on the weekends or want to do on her own house. So, I mean, I love to do do it yourself, you know, plumbing, electrical, wallboards, insulation, tiling, you know, carpentry, whatever it is. I, I just get a kick out of doing stuff like that. Nice. No golfing? No, no, I I just don't have the time to play yeah. golf. What about, do you have a favorite music artist? You know, I grew up in the era of Bruce Springsteen, Billy Joel, and Elton John. Um, you know, so between the three of them, um, I probably, I grew up down the road from Billy Joel's Glass Houses. So I'd probably go with either Billy or Bruce Springsteen. And the last one, Messi or Ronaldo? Messi or Ronaldo. As a goalkeeper, I don't really want either of them. No. Um, I would probably go in Messi. Yeah. That was, you took long with that one, though. Yeah, no, because I was trying to think, you know, should I just say Gordon Banks? Um, you know, come up with a Hubert Birkenmeyer, a go, you know, goalkeeper of significant elk. But, um, yeah, I'll go with Messi. Yeah. Is that your favorite goalkeeper? Uh Birkenmeyer, Hubert Birkenmeyer was a keeper for the Cosmos when I played in the in the NASL. And he, he was just fun to watch. You know, he's just a very talented goalkeeper. You know, his skill level was phenomenal. His angle play, his distribution, everything just was spot on. Gordon Banks was, you know, hard to believe that what he was able to do in the NASL with one eye. You know, he'd lost the vision in one. So, um, yeah, between the two of them, I'd be hard-pressed. I'll ask, I'll ask two more. Um, do you have, if you watch, do you have a favorite MLS team and um, do you have a favorite uh, European team? Since I trained with, since I trained with Sheffield United, um, they would be the team I would focus on um, European MLS team. Um, because we spent 12 years in Colorado, that's where our kids were raised. And we went to a number of the Rapids games. Um, they would probably be the team that, you know, I'd, I'd probably root for more often than not. Um, you know, I'm getting to been here four years. As I said, you go out my window and there's FC Dallas. So, you know, it's hard not to want to cheer for the local team. But again, from from a longevity perspective, the Rapids have it. For sure. Well, Skip, before we go, I'd like to thank you for taking the time for joining me on the One Soccer Nation podcast today. Absolutely, Kareem. Thanks very much for having me. It's a lot of fun.